0: I invite you to open your Bible with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, and I want to consider this subject this morning of spiritual leadership with you, spiritual leadership, and more specifically, uh, who is to provide spiritual oversight to the church? Who's to provide spiritual oversight to the church? If you'll remember... Paul and Timothy are serving in Ephesus, and they had spent several years there. The church was thriving, and after a couple of years, upon Paul's departure, he appoints Timothy to remain and to serve as the pastor of the Ephesian church. Later, Paul writes this pastoral letter that we have, 1 Timothy, as an older seasoned pastor to a younger man... Uh, to encourage him and also to provide some counsel to him. So it was kind of, as you read this, you, you kind of get the the feeling, the sense that Timothy perhaps had become a little discouraged, and so Paul was writing, encouraging him to remain there, to stay with it, and also he provides this counsel. And in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it's kind of the theme uh, to this letter where he says, Timothy, I write these things to you so that you would know how we are to conduct ourselves in the house, in the, in the church. And so then Paul begins to pro- provide some counsel uh, to Timothy as he led the church. He actually provides a strategy for success. And it's kind of like you say, hey, Timothy, this, this, this pastoring is not going to be easy. I want you to stay focused on the basics Uh, Things are not going to change overnight, but God is faithful and he's with you, and so he provides some principles for spiritual health. And as we've looked at this, these are not just, when we think about the church, principles for health, they're not just principles for the general health of the church. These are principles that are specific to you and I as members of the body of Christ, And so he says, first, devote yourself to doctrine. We spent some time on that. Second, work to establish discipline in the church. Again, don't sweep things under the rug and need to confront things and try to work to get all the members in the church connected in relationships and accountable to one another. Third, he says, devote yourself to prayer and make prayer an emphasis in the church and then... We spent a few weeks looking at spiritual alignment, uh, which means he provides some instruction for men and women. Women, you remember, were to live godly lives, uh, conscientious of their dress and their appearance and their behavior and words. And they were certainly to be learners of doctrine, uh, which was a big deal, students of the word. Uh, Many and I were talking about this this week. It would be, I think it'd be good if more and more women of our church took Bible classes and seminary classes and were uh, got more theological training. I think that would be a healthy thing for for women and healthy for the church. And women were to, as we saw this, were to serve and to do evangelism just like the men and lead and teach and do all the things they're doing in the church. And then the men are to step up in prayer and to serve as leaders both in the home and the church. And Specifically, they are to exercise spiritual authority, leading the church through teaching, which is what we're going to see this morning. And so, uh, which brings us to this issue of leadership. And I would say this to all of us as Hillcrest Baptist Church, as well as to any church. Our health as a congregation and our progress in the Lord, in the faith, as we serve to. Uh, make disciples, bringing honor and glory to Christ, that our health and our progress will always be related to the quality of our leaders, to the quality of the leadership. And so God, so we're going to see this, has called some men in the church to serve as elders, as leaders, and this calling is more character-based than it is based on their giftedness giftedness is important. In fact, as we look through this list of what Paul says to look for in spiritual leaders, there's only one of these character qualities that is related to giftedness. Everything else are just these qualities that that uh, we hopefully develop as God continues to work within us. And so read with me 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and then let's pray together. This is a trustworthy, faithful, sane. If a man desires the p- position of a bishop, some of your Bibles may say overseer, some even may say elder. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, Hospitable and apt to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, referring to outside the body, outside the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And I'm going to read this, we'll pick up this later, but if you'll notice in verse eight, then he gets into some of the same character qualities for deacons. And so uh, let's let me ask you to pray with me. Father in these remaining moments that we have together in worship. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit and we thank you for the written word. And we thank you for the privilege, Lord of Sitting under the word, and we pray today that you would be pleased that how it's presented and how it's received, and that you would be greatly exalted in our lives. And God, that we would be faithful to align ourselves with what you prescribe, to be obedient to your word. And we just pray for the health and the progress of this ministry together, all of it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I hope that you uh, keep your Bible open, and we're going to look at some things here, and if you, the very first thing I want you to see in chapter 3, the first uh, verse, and as we got, worked through this text, and likewise further down. The New Testament, the Bible prescribes two offices in the church, two offices. The first is an office that we are more familiar with, and that begins to be described starting, starting down in verse 8. Notice it says, refers to deacons, and the word is diaconos, and so we're a little bit more familiar with deacons, amen? Uh, a deacon in the church, literally that word, the diaconate or diaconos, refers to attendance. Uh, Those who wait on others, they are servers. Those who run errands, that's the meaning of the word deacon. And there is no job description in the New Testament for a deacon. Deacons are simply those individuals in the church who roll up their sleeves and say, God, here am I, use me. Whatever is needed, whatever needs to be done, I just want to serve. That's deacons. Some of you have heard me say that deacons are to be the shock absorbers and the mufflers in the church, often working behind the scenes, doing whatever is necessary to meet needs in order to keep the ride smooth and quiet. So what do we know about deacons? We know about those. We're familiar with deacons. But then the second office is prescribed in verse 1. Notice he says the role or the office of bishop or overseer, and the word there is episkopos. Does that sound like any word you're familiar with, episkopos? Sounds like episcopal. Well, the word is translated bishop or overseer, and the meaning is literally one who, episkopos, one who is inspects, one who is in charge of, one who is responsible for. In other places, you'll see Instead of the word episkopos, but referring to the same office, you'll find the word presbyteros. Does that sound like another familiar word? Presbyteros? Kind of sounds like Presbyterians, right? And the meaning there is one who is mature, one who is seasoned, referring to elders or pastors, shepherds. And so in the New Testament, both of these terms, episkopos and presbyteros, are used interchangeably. They're kind of synonymously, and but they're referring to the same office, this leadership office and role in the church of mature, seasoned pastors, shepherds, men who are paying attention to things, men who are overseeing the big picture of the church, and who are responsible to lead the church to be healthy and to fulfill the Great Commission. So two offices, deacons no job description, they're servants, and then elders are responsible for the health of the church. And they do have a specific job description described many places throughout the New Testament, which we'll look more at uh, this today and then one more Sunday next week. But basically, these elders, these shepherds, these seasoned men are to oversee the life of the church, overseers. Now, in our Baptist tradition, At least for the last 75 or 80 years, the role of deacon and elder has been combined. That's kind of the way we function. We function as Baptists with one elder, one pastor, working together with a body of deacons, and that's kind of our tradition. That's the way we function, which is not exactly what you see in the New Testament. Historically, Baptists used to have elders and deacons, and so instead there is this distinguishable pattern in the New Testament that almost in every New Testament church that is mentioned in the Bible, you see a plurality of elders in every church. Now, don't take my word for that. Do you have your Bible? Would you you kind of go on a journey with me? Let's go to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are on their... A first missionary trip, and they're preaching and working and winning people to Christ, baptizing them, planning churches, training them, making disciples. And in Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 21 through 23, read with me. So Paul and Barnabas, and when they had preached the gospel to that city, And made many disciples, they then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So they're revisiting the churches, every place they've been, strengthening the souls of the disciples, and then exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And then referring to all of these different churches, and when they had what? Appointed elders, when they had appointed overseers, where? In every church. They appointed these, so every church was clear that they knew who those who were leading, who had been identified and were spiritually responsible for the leadership of the church. Go with me to uh, Acts chapter 20. So just a couple of over, this is a few years later. Paul now is on his third trip and also revisiting churches just like before and towards the end of this mission trip, he's about to make his way south to Jerusalem and he stops in the city, the port of Miletus and while there, look what he does. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. And from Miletus, he's sent to what church? To the Ephesian church, which is where Timothy is... Is has been appointed a pastor. He's sent to Ephesus and called for who? He called for the elders, these individuals responsible for leading the church in the city in the church of Ephesus. Look at verse 28. And then he, they finally arrive and he talks to them and then in verse 28, he charges them, therefore take heed to yourselves... So you spiritual leaders, take care of yourselves and also to all the flock, referring to the congregation, whom the Holy Spirit has made you elders, overseers, to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's Ephesians chapter 20. I want you to listen to how Paul opens his letter to the church to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, along with the bishops, the overseers, and the deacons. Philippians 1, 1. So he identifies three groups. He refers to the entire church, and then he refers to the elders, these overseers, as well as to the deacons, separate offices. And then in the church, as he writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, he says this, I urge you, brethren, writing to the whole church, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, he's referring to spiritual authority, over you in the Lord, the same ones who admonish you, therefore esteem them very highly in love for their works' sake who's Paul referring to there in Thessalonica, Well, he's referring to a designated group, a plurality of men who've been recognized by the church and set apart as those who are overseeing the spiritual life of the church. Those Thessalonians knew who these brothers were because they have been set apart, called, and placed in those roles. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I'll, I keep going, but let me just mentioned this one as well. The Hebrew Christians are exhorted, and, and the word says, obey those men, plural, who are over you in the Lord and have spiritual authority in the church and be submissive to them for they, plural, watch out for your souls and will give an account to God. It is not referring to deacons. And it cannot be referring to a single pastor. Rather, it is referring to a group of spiritual leaders, men set apart by the church to lead. And so to summarize, practically, the New Testament identified each church knew who their spiritual leaders were. They were men who had been appointed, called out, set apart, and placed and the church, all the church knew that these were the individuals, these plurality of elders, bishops, were the ones who were leading the church. Now, a practical consideration that is rooted in the Bible. And so, let me ask you, those of you, maybe of you have been here for many years, some of them are shorter, some of them longer. Let me ask you just a practical question, having considered this. Who in this church, in Hillcrest Baptist Church, who is identified and is responsible for leading the church. Who is it in the context of Hillcrest? Let me give you a few options, so kind of a multiple choice here. You listen to the options. Is it the pastor? A single pastor? Is that the person who is over everything? Is it B, all of the church staff, paid church staff? Are they over everything? C, is it committees? Are committees the one who oversee everything? Does it include some families that have been here a long time and have a lot of spiritual influence and respect? D, is it some families? Are they over everything? E, is it the deacons? Are the deacons the one who are spiritually over everything? Is it the church council? Are they the ones who are identified that they're over the entire church? Is G, is it the finance team that ultimately the buck stops with all those who make the financial decisions? Or H, is it all of the above? What would you say? In my spiritual opinion, from having been here pretty much day in, day out, every day after on the third year, I think it's H. H. I think it's all of the above. I think to varying degrees, every one of those options that I've listed are spiritually leading this church. That's how we're functioning, in my modest opinion. In the text, Paul is writing to Timothy, and the strategy is, Timothy, you need to have a body of deacons, brothers who serve, who take care of things, brothers who will work hard and roll up their sleeves and do whatever it takes to help the church be healthy. But Timothy, you also need an appointed body of spiritual overseers, elders, who serve with you, a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors who pay attention to things, who oversee things, who make decisions, who... Establish priorities and set direction, who are responsible for the spiritual oversight of the church and who are always, because we're congregationalists, who are always reporting back to the church. You know these things that we have, business meetings, I like to call them member meetings. Why do we have member meetings? It's because we're congregationalists. We refer everything back to the church. Now the day-to-day stuff that goes on here There needs to be some people just take care of those things. But the big things, the decisions, policies, budgets, things that we do, all of that comes back to the church. And so that's what Paul is describing here in the text. I want you to go with me one other place. Go over with me to Titus chapter 1. Would you do that? Titus chapter 1. And Let me make a few other comments, and then we'll get to some of the more practical aspects of this, but Titus chapter one, would you, uh, Paul is the author, Titus is the young pastor, It's another pastoral epistle, and again, this older, seasoned, experienced pastor, Paul, is writing to provide counsel to this younger guy. Look at Titus chapter one, look at verse one, Paul, that's who's writing this, two, look at verse four, to Titus, he's the pastor, and then read with me in verse five what he says to him. Again, providing spiritual strategy. Verse five, for this reason I left you in Crete on that island pastoring the church that you should set in order the things that are lacking in the church and do what? And appoint elders in every city as I commanded you and then he provides a character list. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop, this elder, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by Sound doctrine, that sounds like, apt to teach, who may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. See that in verse five? Set in order, correct, fix, improve those things that are lacking. Some translators say, amend what is defective in the church. And he says, Paul says, Timothy, how do you do that? He says, verse five, find some brothers in the church and appoint them as elders. Verse 7, again, he refers to them as bishops, and again, those terms are synonymous. 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to read that as well. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's writing some Jewish Christians there in a church, they're suffering, going through fiery trials, and then here's what he says in verse 1. The elders of this church who are among you, I exhort... I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And so what does he say to this plurality of elders, these overseers? Verse 2, he says shepherd, pastor, the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords, kind of dictators over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Elders, a group of men responsible for shepherding, pastoring the church, overseeing the life of the church. And I'll talk next week a little bit more about their role. But let's go back to the text. What are the qualifications for these brothers? Now I invite you to go back to the text, 1 Peter 3, and before going through these character qualities very quickly with you, I might add, some of you are here today and you might be wondering, well, what does all of this elder stuff, overseer, bishop stuff, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to me? Because after all, this is referring to elders and I'm not an elder. This, so really, what relevance does this have to my life? Well, I'd say, First of all, it has great relevance to the health of the church, but second, everything we're going to see in the Bible about these character qualities is should be applicable to all of us. Amen? So that means if I, a man, woman, husband, wife, young person, older person, if I want God to really work through my life to bless others and to bring him glory, then I care I should have concern that all of these character qualities are also true of my life so with that being said let's let's go through and look at what what Paul says this is what you're looking for for spiritual leadership the first qualification very verse one is these men should have a desire to serve in this way see that in verse one they should have a desire for it a desire to serve and I point out it's not a it is not a desire for status <laughs> Uh, it's not a desire for glory and recognition and praise. He says, you need to find men who have a desire for service. They just have a harsh desire produced in them by the Holy Spirit to, to, have, to serve. And so right at the start, this is a limiting qualification. One that the Holy Spirit has to produce within the heart of this brother, or all of us as individuals, a godly desire within to serve with pure motives, purely for God's glory, purely for the blessing of other people without any desire for applause and accolades or recognition or attention. Timothy, he says, appoint men whom God has produced this desire within them and men who understand the value and the role that this office is one of, and don't overlook this, it's one of good W-O-R-K. They have a desire to serve and they have a desire to work. Yeah, you pastors got it easy. Your hours are better than banker hours. One day a week, rest of the time you kind of come and go in and out, make a visit here or there, travel kind of when you want to, slip off and go to ball games, take time off and get paid the big bucks and drive fancy cars, wear nice clothes, right? I've heard all that. I, I, I get it. I get it. And you know what I'd say about that? Honestly, for some pastors, that's sadly true. And I've known a lot of pastors through the years who are slothful, who are lazy, and they need to get out of the ministry. They have no sense of spiritual urgency. You remember John 4 when disciples go away to get Jesus' food and they come back and they bring him food. You remember he says, he doesn't want to eat. He says, I have food to eat that you know not of. And then he tells them, Lift up your eyes unto the fields, for they are white unto harvest. you remember him saying that? What was he saying? He's saying, brothers, the fields are ripe. This is a ripe season. It's white unto harvest. Don't say tomorrow or next week or next month. He's conveying spiritual urgency. Listen, there are, there are lost people in our own families In our own church family, some of you have unsaved loved ones, sons and daughters, parents who are lost, they're unsaved. We're in a community of unsaved people, and it's pretty easy sometimes just to limp along, to go through the cycle, through the routine, with no sense of spiritual urgency to redeem the time, to make the most of every day, because these are evil days, wicked days. May God give us a spiritual sense of urgency. There's some brothers who are like that who do just enough to look busy, just enough to get by and to keep their jobs in the church. But the fact of the matter is if the man is faithful, if he's truly faithful, then this. guess what? Ministry is work, and it's a good work, but it's work. And so the first qualification that you're looking for is the Holy Spirit has to produce within men a desire to serve with pure motives and must have a willingness to work. And then the second quality is listed there in 1 Timothy 3. It's also in Acts 6, Titus 1. We've looked at it. Is they need to be blameless. And and I would say to you, this is foundational for everything else that you're going to see in the text. Foundational. Blameless. Look at verse 2. Let him be blameless. Look at verse 7. A good testimony. That means a good reputation, a good name. Some of your Bibles will use the, I think the King James says of good repute maybe there. Look, at, look down at verse 10. We didn't read this. We'll get here. But as he's describing deacons, deacons are also to be found what? Verse 10. Blameless. Blameless. Do you remember Acts chapter 6 as the church was starting to grow and they were having some growing pains and the apostles said to the congregation, choose out, you choose out from among you seven men full of the spirit who are wise and have and of good repute. That means good reputation. Good name. They're blameless. Go back to Titus chapter 1. Paul says, Titus, here's how to help the church to be successful and healthy. Appoint among you some elders and amend what's defective in the church by, and he says in verse six, find men who are blameless. And again, he says in verse seven of Titus one, blameless. And so here's the idea. Here's what you're looking for. And hopefully, this is something that all of us aspire to, as all of us, as brothers and sisters of Christ, aspire to have a good name, a good reputation. The general consensus is. When your name is mentioned that people say, ah, she's, she's, a, she's a great Christian lady. When your name is mentioned, ah, he's a good brother. He's respected, he's trusted. People think highly of him. He has a good name. Think about Jesus. Jesus was blameless, the Bible says, above reproach. Was he accused of things? Yeah. Was he charged with things? Was he maligned? Was he ridiculed? Absolutely. But he was Teflon, right? Nothing stuck. He was blameless. He was above reproach. That's, that's the idea, except let me clarify. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. And so this, what we're seeing in 1 Timothy 3, this is, don't, don't take a wooden, literal approach here and say we got to find brothers and people in the church who are sinless. Doesn't mean sinless or Perfect right the bible is not telling us to find other individuals in the church who have sinless pasts who have a perfect history if that be the case no one could serve so when you go through these character qualities they're not to be interpreted in a wooden kind of way meaning uh, perfect as as if people have never made a past mistake or been sinless listen i've done things and said things and have been hard on myself and critical of myself and if you're around me long enough you'll see th- inconsistencies and you'll hear me say things or do things that probably could be done or said better. So this text is not implying perfection or sinlessness. Was it implying? It's just talking about a man, a woman in this case for elders, for men who have solid character. A brother who has met God who knows God, and they're being shaped and transformed by God. And you can tell if you spend time with them. The genuineness of their walk with Christ will emerge. It's the idea of a good name. If the interpretation if this quality becomes wooden too literally, and you're looking for people who have sinless pasts, perfect pasts, then the only way to meet this and put brothers into this role Is one of two things. Either you you don't find anybody and nobody serves in this capacity, or you find people who are steeped in pretension. In other words, you just find a bunch of fakes who purport to be something that they're not, and that's who you put into these roles. You see, if a spiritual leader doesn't have a good name, nobody's going to trust them, nobody's going to respect them, and they're not going to follow them. Does that make sense? It's foundational to everything else, their name, their reputation. And I would also say this, if a brother falls, if they mess up, the gospel, the grace would say, hey, by God's grace, in time, you can rebuild your name, you can rebuild your reputation. Amen? Amen. Third, the husband of one wife. What does that mean? The husband of one wife, meaning, well, let me tell you what it actually says in the Greek. A husband and one wife, it, it actually translates the husband of one wife. That's what it says. <laughs> what does it mean? It's referring to a one woman man. Find a brother in the church whose mind and his heart is fixed on his own wife. The proverb says find a brother like this who, is, uh, who draws water from his own cistern. Now, I not say sister, I said sister. <laughs> In other words, he's, he's to be morally pure. He's blameless. He has a desire to serve, a desire to work. And his eyes and his heart and his affection is set upon his own wife. Again, there have been those who've taken a wooden approach to this, a literal interpretation, who come up with all kinds of legalistic views, and I think it's very unfortunate. Let me give you some examples how this text is misinterpreted. What if a brother was married in the past, and then his wife dies, and he remarries? If you take a wooden interpretation of this text, that brother would be disqualified because he's been he's had more than one wife. See that's a wooden interpretation. That's not what it's trying to convey at all. He'd be disqualified from ever serving as a deacon or elder or pastor in the church. Or let me give you another so what if a man was single? It says a husband of one wife. What if he was single and he'd never married? Well, a wooden approach would disqualify that brother. And by the way, it would, go against what, it would go against the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was single. And so if we took a literal approach to that, and the Apostle Paul was a member of our church, he couldn't serve as an elder or pastor or deacon here because he was single. In fact, just go further. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says of himself that he's single. And let me read to you what he says. He says, and I wish and would prefer, I think it's better, if no one was married and all of you remain single as I am, because you could be more fully focused on serving Christ. And he says this, and I love this when he thinks about marriage. And he says, and you'll save yourself a lot of trouble. <laughs> See, I heard a couple of amen over here. <laughs> so the, 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 the quality, the characteristic, it's not to be a wooden interpretation, literal interpretation, it's a, it's a principle. Find brothers who have good names. They're respected, they're trusted, their motives are pure. They want to serve the Lord. And, they, and they're not concerned about praise and recognition and honor. They're morally pure. They're, they're, they, they love their wife, a one-woman man. And Closely related to that is this next one in verse 4, one who rules his own household well with his children living in submission and reverence. This is also repeated in Titus chapter 1. The idea is that he's a good husband, With a healthy marriage, he's above reproach, and his family, his home life, has some alignment to it. Again, it's not doesn't mean it has to be perfect. Listen, there was a day in time when Minnie and I had four teenagers at one time under our roof, three of them girls, all at the same time, and and the Davis household at times looked pretty lively. And however, in the midst sometimes of the chaos, there was still some semblance of order. It was kind of controlled chaos, if you will. There was some alignment. And there were rules in the house. And things got done. And there was general respect that we had as parents towards our kids. And there was respect that our kids had towards us as parents. And we ate meals together and we prayed together and we shared life together and we talked about the Lord together and there was discipline as was needed, consistent with being in church together as a family, lots of love, a healthy reverence for the Lord. But I'll tell you, it wasn't perfect. (laughs) It certainly wasn't sinless, but there was order to it. There was some alignment. And Paul says, you want to make sure that on a smaller scale, if a brother, if there's not some of that going on in the household, in the home, then you, if you can't run that, oversee the smaller, then you don't want them to be responsible for the larger managing the church. Let me, let me go through these a little quick and we'll wrap this up. Numbers 5, 6, and 7, they're to be sober-minded, especially how they view and think of themselves. Romans 12, I think especially applies, you don't want brothers who think too highly of themselves. And so, you know, the, which later gets into you don't, you don't want to be a novice. So you, you put on this elder hat and then they parade around like they're a general. You, you don't want that. Sober minded, vigilant, which means what? Men who are self controlled. All of us, we want to have a testimony where we're self controlled. Remember, Paul talks about uh, a, a boxer? He says, I'm not fighting, I'm not beating the air. But what? He says, I'm, I'm fighting, I'm doing everything I can to bring my body under discipline so that when I preach, when I teach, when I witness to others, I'm not disqualified. Self-control. Self-control. And then good behavior. Some of your Bibles translate that respectable. That's from a Greek word, kosmios. Does that sound like another English word, kosmios? cosmos, or... Cosmetics, cosmetics. What, what, do, what do cosmetics, what do makeup do? Well, makeup enhances appearance, right? And I got to confess to you, there's been some times in my life where I put on some makeup, <laughs> literally. And I, I just, just make a point. I remember being in high school, you know, and you're going through some changes, and gosh, sure as a world, you get a giant pimple. Right on the end of your nose or middle of your forehead, it looked like a cyclops and the thing turned into a crater, you know? And I didn't care what my buddies thought, but those girls, you know, you you just, you, you, just, you don't want to even look at it. You got that big crater there, you know? And so <clears throat> I'd been around enough to watch my mother and sister go in there and they had this base makeup, it was kind of skin colored, you know, was it? call and then I'd go in there, and I'd kind of smear a little bit over and then try to, you know, to enhance appearance, you know, so he says, yeah, I know what you say our pastor wears makeup and he me he's wearing makeup Cosmeos the metaphor is our lives are to serve as a cosmetic through our good works through our good behavior, we make Christ and his church and the gospel look good that's what we're trying to do. That sounds like Jesus in Matthew 5. Let your good works, right? Let them bring glory. Let them be a cosmetic. Number eight is this quality of being hospitable. Hospitable. I think it's a, it's a we're kind of losing this one in the church. It's referring literally to those who are unselfish and generous and giving. And, it, and it, it applies to caring for people. We're to be hospitable. Opening up our lives and opening up our homes to build relationships with people. You know, let me ask you. Say this in little. How long has it been since you and your wife invited somebody over to your house and it didn't, and just opened up your house to get to know somebody? Just said, you know what? I I really like them. Let's let's get to know them. We let's set a time and invite them over and our home, and we can just sit and relax and just. And hear their story. See, hospitality. Sometimes the reason we don't do this because we're too busy. Number nine. Uh, uh, this is critical for elders. And by the way, this is the only gift in this list. Everything else refers to character. But he says they need to be apt to teach. Find these brothers in the church to lead who are apt to teach. Again, the only gift mentioned. And the lesson is, if you think about what you're looking for, you're looking for men and people uh, who who we are and what we are is more important than what we do. Character matters. And the required giftedness, the only one re- pertains to Scripture. Those who oversee the church must do so from God's Word. They need to be apt to teach. What does apt to teach mean? Well, it means you want to find individuals three things. Who know the Bible... Do they know Scripture? Second, are they able to communicate it? Can they articulate it where people understand? They they give the sense of it. And then third, can they apply it? Those who lead the church must be apt to teach. They know the Scripture. They communicate the Scripture. And they know how to make decisions for the health of the church based on the Scripture. And then some negatives. Not given to wine. Some of your Bibles say not given to much wine. Well, what's, what is that saying? The best policy, I think, for us as believers is just not to drink, to protect your witness and that of the church, but that's not really what it's saying. You don't want to put anybody in this position who has any problem with alcohol. They don't, have, they don't even have a problem with alcohol. No addiction issues. Not given to wine. Next one, Not violent. You ever, you ever know somebody in the church who is just kind of a bully? Here, maybe a woman, just, he or she, just a bully. Uh, somebody would say a striker. Uh, they, they can be abusive. They, or they have an anger. They have a temper issue. You don't, you don't want that. And he says the opposite. You want to find people who are gentle. Do you remember there's only one place in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself inwardly? Matthew 11, come unto me, all of you weak and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for what? I am gentle, and lowly in heart, not quarrelsome, not quarrelsome. You don't want to put people into these positions who are argumentative and they're divisive, always looking to correct. Do, do, do you know anybody in the church that you just think is ornery? They're, they're just kind of ornery. They just don't get along with anybody. They If you say black, they say white. They just... You don't want to put that kind of person in this role. Not covetous, not covetous, uh, not greedy. I-, I love the King James translation. Not greedy for what? Filthy lucre. Doesn't, doesn't that, doesn't that just, just kind of grab you? Not greedy for filthy lucre. First Timothy 6, those who desire money open themselves to all kinds of temptations for this desire, this love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, evil. And I would say this, there might be some of the church's elders, overseers who are paid, like myself, who've been uh, a really, real blessing to think about, get up every day and get to devote myself to ministry and the ministry of the word. And there might be other laymen, men in the church who are laymen, they work other jobs and they're not paid, but they, they still serve the Lord in this capacity. Verse 6 of Or the next one from verse 6, not a novice. I've already mentioned this. You don't want to put a recent convert in this. Somebody that would get the big head and and fall into pride, hurting themselves and others, and then finally, a good testimony. See it again in verse 7. Blameless, above reproach. And this time, not only having a good reputation in the church, but having a good reputation outside the church. Their neighbors and their coworkers think, hey, that guy, that lady... They're solid. They're the real deal. And so, just to summarize all this, the church needs good leadership, identified, recognized leaders who are apt to teach, who love the word, who have a desire to serve, to work hard, who have a good reputation. Men and women who know God, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and transformed by Christ. And they don't have sinless past. They're not perfect, but they have good character living out the gospel. The church should identify them, appoint them with the church setting them apart to lead the church family. And I would add, as a healthy church family, may these character qualities describe all of us, every one of us. Let me close with this thought. Three temptations to avoid. You want to avoid the temptation to shine, to shine, You don't want people in positions of spiritual leadership in the church who want to draw attention to themselves, praise, and recognition. The temptation, avoid shining. The second temptation to avoid is the temptation to recline. You don't want anybody lazy in these roles who are looking for an easy chair, easy way out. You don't want guys going into ministry who, who don't have a good work ethic. And then third, you want to avoid the temptation to whine. To whine. Guys who feel sorry for themselves and feel like everybody in the church exists for them. I told, told this to young pastors all the time. Shepherds uh, exist for the sheep. The sheep don't exist for the shepherds. Whiners, always complaining. Some of you may have heard the story about Martin Luther. Came down to breakfast one morning. I'll close with this. Invite deacons to come. But Came down to breakfast one morning as he went into the room and sat at the table. He noticed that his wife was, had her funeral apparel on. From head to toe, she was dressed in black. And so he asked her, he said, Honey, has someone died? And she said, Oh, yes. I think God is dead. And He was quick to try to theologically address that issue and correct her. He said, what do you mean God has died? And she said, well, the way that you've been acting the last several weeks, I figured that God was dead, that he was no longer able to help you and strengthen you by the way that you've been whining and complaining all the time. And so I thought I would dress for his funeral. The temptation... To shine, to recline, and to wine—would you bow in prayer with me?